Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Composite Mind, a podcast about creativity, inspiration, where we find it and how we hold on to it. Produced by Roughhouse Theatre and presented by me, Shane Morgan. Hello and welcome to episode six or the final episode of season one of The Composite Mind. Now, before we talk about our very special guest for this episode, I have to thank once again the very brilliant lineup of Amit Lahav, Charlotte Bennett, Dr. Rada Modgill, Tori Allen Martin, Sarah Henley and Rowena Alice, who were my guests in previous episodes. You can find all our back catalogue under The Composite Mind on your favourite podcast platform. Now on to our guest for this episode. With a global pandemic affecting aspects of all of our lives, Marza Mengiste not only came to the end of a 10-year journey writing and seeing published the remarkable The Shadow King, but she also scored a Booker Prize nomination to boot. I'm a huge fan of Marza's writing and having the opportunity to chat with her about her career, her creative process, and listening to her two fabulous choices for the guest-curated Spotify playlist has been a highlight of 2021. I'll catch up with you at the end, but in the meantime, enjoy episode six of The Composite Mind with the very brilliant and very, very lovely Marza Mengiste. How are you? How's the last 12 months been for you? Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a question I have to ask myself every day, just uh, to remind myself, hey, you're here. Yeah. Um, but I, it has been a, a, a year full of surprises and unpredictability. Um, it, has, it has, I think, rearranged what I, what I think of, of the future. So, um, but I'm still thinking of a future. So I think that's, that's a big leap. Um, but I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> good. That's really good. That's really good. Has the last 12 months somehow altered or affected your practice, both as a, as a writer and as a, and as a creative? Is it somehow, uh, has it somehow changed the way you either approach or absorb your mm. own practice? Uh, I think the early days of this pandemic made me think about what would I do if, if time weren't guaranteed? You know, how would, how would I move into my creative practice? Where else is there that I would like to go? What have I always wanted to do that I haven't done yet? And um, what am I really afraid of? Uh, so all of these things have informed the projects that, that I've been thinking about now, the direction that, that I'm moving in. Um, I know that I was very willing to fail with writing this second book, um, I'm even more willing to fail into this third thing. I'm willing to take bigger risks because why not? Um, they're, they're really, if there's anything that's guaranteed, it's, it's the fact that our effort, not the result, is what should have meaning. And I, and I really want to keep following through with that. It's remarkable, isn't it, that sense of it being okay 
as a creative to fail. Yeah. That it's not, I mean, I know Samuel Beckett said it, you know, a lot, lots of people prior to Beckett talked about failure and also the effect that it has on us as a human being, but also as a creative. But that sense of it being okay, that sense of needing to take risks is actually quite a remarkable one. You talk about time. Now, am I right in saying that the Shadow King, I mean, the Shadow King was obviously generations in the making ultimately, but am I right in saying that for you as a creative process, it was around the 10-year mark? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I had no idea it would be like that, of course, when I began. I thought it was, I had done one book, this next one should be easier, it should be faster, and in fact, it was was the complete opposite. Uh, Yeah, it was about 10 years, and uh, it taught me patience, if anything, Uh, and also to to take pleasure in the creative process and and let it take the time that it's going to take. I There is no way that in the first three years of writing that book, I could have written The Shadow King as it turned out now. Time was my friend, even though I thought of it as an enemy when I was impatient or my editor is, is emailing me asking about deadlines. And um, But it, it took the time it took and I, I'm glad I, I, I had that. One of the other guests on uh, this podcast, the artistic director of a theatre company in the UK called Gecko Theatre, um, and his name is Amit Lahav, and he talks about a, his creative process being generally a three to four year process, a year of thinking, a year of researching, a year of making and exploring. And then once that piece of theatre gets up, on its feet, then it's an organic process of change whilst it's on the road and in front of different audiences. To have a 10 year process, it's, it's funny hearing you talk about you know, your internal impatience with it, but also the external of the editor and, and the people who are anticipating, you know, the, your readers, the people who are anticipating that piece of work as well. But to challenge that and to resist that, what were some of the techniques that you found yourself exploring or, 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 or taking on board in order to really try and resist those mm. external and internal pressures? Uh, well, um I think maybe part of the advantage I had was it just wasn't done yet. There is no way that I could have rushed it. There was no, I couldn't think past the next chapter often and to think past that required time that it it was almost impossible to try to speed it up. Um, I tr- there were times when I would just say, tell myself, just write just anything, just put it down on paper, just forget it, just do it. And it would be horrible. And I would come back and sit down and have to revise everything again. So I learned my lesson. Um, It really, it was, it was a, it was a long, it was a lesson in persistence and patience. Um, If, if there was anything that also that I learned along the way was to trust my instincts, and that at some point I was really the only expert that I could turn to with this because I knew the book that was in my head that I, that was, it's my creation. Um, and if there's anything, I was fighting against myself often. I read something interesting about the uh, the Shadow King where you, I think it was, 
I think it was several years down the track of your writing process and, and the, the research and the writing that you actually found out that your, am I right in saying that it was your great grandmother who was actually, she was on the front line as well, that she was actually involved? Having found that out, do you think that if you started with that, you'd have a very different book today? Uh. That is a, a really good question. I have thought about that because I asked my mother, why didn't you tell me this way at the beginning of this writing process? You know, why wait? But I think um, if I had found out, I, I think I would have tried to write a biography. I would have been hampered by that, the details of what actually happened in my family. I would have felt an obligation to recreate that story uh, and in not finding out about any of that while I was writing, I had the freedom to imagine anything. So anything was possible because I didn't know that part. Um, but it was only later, the book, the book was basically done when I found out about my great grandmother. And what was really uncanny were the parallels uh, between her life and the book that my great grandmother had, had fought for the possession of her father's gun, had taken her father to court to get the gun. But my character Hirut was fighting for possession of her father's gun. Mm -hmm. there, I had no idea of one story while I was writing mine, none. That it is was, remarkable. Yeah, it was. I didn't believe my mother when she first told me this thing about my great grandmother. I said, wait a minute. You know, we need to get the women together in my family and I need to hear this from all of them without them speaking to each other. And we did that. And all of them came back with the same story. Uh, and then, you know, my great grandmother's name, I had known her as Tete, which is a name. It's like granny. That's the, you know, you use that for an elder female in the family, Tete. But her name was Gete, which was the name of Hirut's mother in my book. I had no idea about that. Um, Are you so sure your mother didn't somehow find your manuscript and just think, you know what, <laughs> I'm just going to slide this in and just make her feel a little bit better about right? it. Right? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But, you know, it. who knows what we pick up on as, as children? Who knows the things that we think are... are spontaneous um, creative productions, but they're actually something housed deep in our memory. You know, maybe this is the way that memory and creativity work together. I'm not sure, but it was, it was uncanny that that happened, that those things happened. It's almost one of those formulas that you, you actually, as a creative, you don't want to know the answer to, because I think what you talk about is trusting not only the time that you have, but also trusting that the story will eventually emerge. I, th I think those, those, those stories that you surround yourself with when you are growing up really, really do inform you. Were there, were there a set of stories that you really hold dear to you yourself now still as a as a writer but also as someone who works in the field of education that you can that you pass on to really say these are who 
these are who informed me when I when I was younger, when I was growing up. These are the people that really I hold dear today. Is are, are there a set of people and stories that you still rely on or fall back on occasionally as a writer? Yeah, you know, um, it it will sound funny, but Homer's the Iliad, uh, the you know, which is not the, uh, but it's one of the things that that, that comes to mind initially. Partly because um, as, as an Ethiopian in the United States, having gone through a school system where there were never books about Ethiopians, nothing that really reflected my experience, to pick up Homer and to find Ethiop and Ethiopian in the Greeks was an electrifying moment of recognition for me. That because I said, oh my God, here I am. Yeah. Somebody knew that that we existed, that I exist. And I read myself into those stories. Uh, and so for me, these Greek plays and the Greek tragedies and these epics were as much about my part of the world as anything else. I, I really claimed them. Um, I would look at the way that the Greeks dressed or the Romans dressed and said, "This is Ethi- these are Ethiopian clothes. Uh, the chorus that was in the Greek tragedies were the Asmari in Ethiopia that were the, the town criers, the troubadours, the griots that passed down history and passed rumors in villages and communities. I saw the parallels in that and it felt so completely comfortable to me that I didn't, I couldn't understand why some people, some teachers and maybe some classmates thought that they weren't, those were not part of my culture. Because I said, wait a minute, these, these Greeks and Ethiopians have been talking for really much longer than, <laughs> than you know, Europe and, and yeah. you know, Homer. So I, um, that, that was really one of those moments. Uh, and of course, to think about the questions that were being asked about justice the questions about what what honor is and integrity. I mean, more so than Shakespeare, because you know, even though he was part of, of my reading, um, those texts really informed me um, initially. And then, you know, when I went into college and started reading more African literature, uh, looking at the 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 books of Amaata Edu, a Ghanaian feminist writer. She wrote this book called Our Sister Killjoy about a young immigrant woman, African Ghanaian who goes to Germany. And that book was, it floored me. It was poetic. It was brilliantly written and structured. And here, here's a, an African woman who's writing. And I had I had not seen that before. I think as a spectator and as an audience member and as a reader, there is a, a, a real importance in being able to recognise something of yourself in those stories and something of your culture and your background and your history as well in order for you to be able to really attach yourself to it. And it's the constant, it's the constant struggle as a creative to be able to represent that authentically, but also hopefully widen that audience that it's not just those people who recognize themselves in the subject matter how how far into or or whereabouts in the process do you start thinking about the effect 
you want to have upon your audience? When do you start thinking about who your audience is and how you want them to respond to your material? Um, I don't, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I want to say that it was not, it was not until the very end of the book, The Shadow King, that I sat back and I thought, now somebody's going to read it. What is going to happen if nobody understands what I'm doing? Um, what I have done something I haven't read before, but I wanted to try something with structure and voice. And, you know, I, I had not shown the book to anyone in the process of writing it. I didn't send parts to my editor. I did not have friends read it. Nobody read this. It was a, a very personal and private project for me throughout the whole thing. And because I knew that the, the way that I was doing it was so different, I didn't, for me anyway, that I didn't want somebody to go, well, why are you writing like that? Or this is not like you at all. Or I don't understand this. The, the idea was too fragile. Until the very end, I felt I was always on a precipice, always like getting ready to tip into failure. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want anyone doubting when I already was wondering if this would work. So I didn't show it. But at the end of when I was ready to submit the book to my editor, um, I sat at my computer for a minute before I, I sent it off because she would be the first person to read it. And that's when I thought, oh, my God, now, now somebody's going to read it. Now, I, what, what if, you know, what if she doesn't like it? And I had to think about the things that I would fight for. And was there anything that I would be willing to lose? And what if she hated the parts that I really loved, the voices? Would I be willing to jeopardize my career or this the entire book? you know, for that. And I really had to make, I made a very conscious decision at that point. Um, and I called my agent and I said to her, if my editor doesn't like it, I want you to know I'm willing to walk away and try somebody else. Yeah. So that's when the idea of audience and what was happening. And, you know, luckily she came back right away and said, my God, I've never read something like this this is incredible um and then we didn't know I didn't know what the, uh, you know I figured audiences it would either like it or just absolutely hate it and I was prepared for both um and so I braced myself when it went out that's incredible you never I, I don't know may, maybe maybe I'm wrong with this but you never as a creative want someone to sit back and go well, you was okay. You know, you want, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You want those two extremes, don't you? You either want that yes, so yeah, visceral hatred of something where it yeah. just makes them so furious, or you want that absolute. I, I I don't know whether adoration is the is the right word, but you want you want that really strong physical response, especially if it's come from ten years of writing and this hasn't been shared with anyone, you know, this yeah. is the response that you want. Ha have there been any responses that really you weren't expecting? Anything that you thought, 
wow, I didn't see that coming. Um, no, I, you know, the maybe one of the funniest things that happened was that I knew that I knew I, I was, I knew like either the British or the Italians would get offended. You know, there's going to be like a section, a certain section of critics. It's going to just, there's going to just going to be them. And um, so I was getting ready. The Italian version is coming next week. So we'll see what happens right. with okay. that. I'm let's get ready. But when it went out to, when it released in the UK, I remember there was somebody that was like, there was a critic that's like, well, this she's no and I they named like an old historian from the 30s somebody I'd never heard of and I, I wanted to respond I wish I wanted to write back to that person like I don't know who this is and why are you upset that I'm not like this um so some of those things because people read it from their own perspective um so that you know sometimes I would get surprised how 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 narrow their focus would be in reading the book. But for the most part, if people didn't like it, um, it and it, they, it felt too jarring for them, I get it because the book was structured in a way I wanted to make it, this, this is a fragmented story. This is memory is frag fragmented and so is history. I've got it, where, where is it? there we are. Sorry, I've actually got it behind me. I, I, I swear I haven't set that up. There's, you, <laughs> I, I talk about, you, you talk about structure and the way, and that makes so much sense, the way uh, you, you mentioned fragmented mm. memories. There's a remarkable, yeah. and I've never experienced this in a piece of, I've never experienced this in a piece of writing before, that there is, where is it? There is, a, and just looking at it now, just sends chills down my spine there is there is a page and it's one of the chorus sections and there is just one line on the page and it is the most emotive it, it's like a it's like a sucker punch and it's a remarkably structured piece because you're reading all these fragmented voices and then suddenly you turn the page and on this one page, it's completely blank bar one line. And that one line holds the weight of the entire book mm -hmm. in its hands. And the effect, I, I can't even begin to express how it made me feel when I read that one single line. Is that a deliberate choice to really take something out and just place it all on its own and frame it just as a line itself or was that a I don't, I don't want to it, it sounds like I'm asking you that terrible question that everyone asks actors how do you learn all those lines how does something like that become part of your writing process how does structure as much as what is being said filters into into the end product Hmm. Thank you for that. I, um, I thought of this book in the shape of a, of a song um, or of a, a musical composition. And so you have these, you have, you have the, the, the narrative, but then through there is the, are the chorus, is the chorus. And there are times in any opera, in, in any composition when a voice might break out away from the rest and a line 
then becomes, you know, more present in that moment. And that's what I envisioned. And that's what I heard um, for the, that part that you're talking about, like that solo solitary voice that just comes in, in the middle of a, of a, a you know, on a dark stage and, and, and kind of ushers a moment uh, forward is what, what I was wanting to capture um, in that in that page that you talk about because you think you know you you mentioned the Greeks earlier on and in Greek theater the chorus is the most important voice mm -hmm. in the whole mm -hmm. story because mm -hmm. with everything that you cannot bring on stage they bring in what they say absolutely so yeah and that idea of the musical composition is 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 electric it's that's a, such a beautiful way of describing your process what influences you around the writing process? What do you need when you sit down and write? Do you need silence? Do you need to surround yourself? I see you've got some beautiful photographs behind you. <laughs> do you, do you need to surround yourself with items of that are relevant to what you're writing about? How do you, how do you work? Uh, I, I tend to, I have these photographs that are from the 1935 war that that I'm writing about, they, they were all around me as I was writing this book. Um, I, I don't know if I need complete quiet. I, I get a little bit, uh, I don't like too much quiet. I, sometimes I, I'll go write in a cafe. I've, I've written parts of this book in, in cafes. I'll turn on, I'll put on, you know, my, my earpiece, but I can still hear a little bit of ambiance. Mm. Sometimes music helps. Um, but there are moments when I'm deep in the revision process where I do need quiet. And I, I, I don't know if I have any rituals, except uh, I write by hand a lot, mostly. And then I will transfer things onto the computer so that there's another revision in that step. But most of my ideas will happen first in a notebook. And then I move forward that way. Something that I really uh, love about your work ac across what has been published so far is the geography, the landscape of where the piece is set. It goes beyond being another character. It's very much part of the DNA. And I, I obviously, you know, your, your first two uh, novels really reflect that, but also uh, the addition of noir that you edited, um, Addis Ababa Noir, which really not only embraced the location, but also really beautifully embraced the style, that, that sense of what contemporary noir means to us today. Is that a very conscious choice or is that just, is, is your writing just informed by that really rich history that you've grown up listening to and hearing about? Uh, you know, it so up to this point, my, my writing has been really influenced by, of course, Ethiopia, the stories that I heard, some of the things that I remember from there. Um, I think that as, I'm, as I continue to write, uh, I'm becoming more influenced by other, other pieces of knowledge, other pockets of history. Um, I'm asking the same questions I, I think I've always asked about memory and history and what we carry forward, but I'm beginning to move a little bit beyond or past Ethiopia, or maybe not, maybe it's just expanding the, the boundaries a little bit. So 
I'm finding it a very, an interesting moment for me um, because every, like that story in noir, uh, which included, you know, someone from Argentina, because that, that was also part of the research that I did for my first book was researching Argentina. Uh, it was researching Cuba. It was also understanding the, the connections between what happened in Iran during the revolution and what happened in Ethiopia. Those things have continued to inform my imagination. And I'm realizing that um, while geography is important, what's more important are the larger questions that I'm asking. And I don't know where, that means I'm not quite sure where I'll go with this, this new project that I'm that I'm starting to think about. I, I don't know if it's going to be an Ethiopian landscape, but the questions will still be the same or similar. Just before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that uh, you're just about to go on uh, after this to uh, lead a, a, a lecture. Was there a point where just sort of personally walking into that lecture theater with your students after hearing about the Booker nomination <laughs> that you felt, do you know what? Now I feel, I mean, they, you know, they're there as students, you're there as lecturer, that you felt maybe a little bit more grounded with them. Did you see a shift in their response to you? Was there some sort of dialogue between you and the students that you felt had somehow changed mm. after the nomination? Well, I will say that if there's anything, teaching is very humbling mm. because you know I walked in after to my undergraduate students, none of them had heard anything and nobody cared. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was fine with me. <laughs> humbling and crushing at the same time. <laughs> they had no clue. And in fact, when I couldn't make class because that, that was the day of the Booker announcement, the big ceremony, mm. I had to send them an email and say, I'm so sorry, class, I can't make it today. And they, I think a couple of them said, oh, professor, we, I hope you're feeling well. <laughs> like, it's not that. That's extraordinary. So, That's extraordinary. Um, yeah, it was fun. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't say anything. It's just I told them after the fact, um, partly because I, I teach students, my, my graduate students were aware and I think a bit, a bit in awe, but the, the minute that the, the long list and the short list when announced, I just, I, my first thing in class is we are not talking about this. We are going to focus on this, this, what we need to do here. So they kept it cool, but my undergraduates, I told them afterwards, partly because um, I teach students who are often the first in their family to go to, to college. They are working full-time jobs. They are raising families. Even if they are the children, they're contributing to their family income. They are the essential workers that have been forced to work during COVID. Um, I told them after because I wanted them to recognize that if they could see, if they could see that I had been recognized and that I recognized them, then in some way they felt recognized by the world. So that, um, yeah, and then I told them and I said, you know, 
I was shortlisted, but I didn't win. They're like, that's okay, professor. We still like you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> um, so that I did it for that, um, and and they they were they they were just like wow, you know, because they don't they don't imagine um, they don't imagine that they they have access to to people who are recognized outside. They um, and I wanted them to know that they they could do something like this, or that I support their their own creative endeavors. Um, and so that that was maybe one of the best things about the book. <laughs> Who are your people when you were when you were their age, when you were, you know, your students age? Who were the people that you really looked up to or responded or, 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 or fed off of yeah. in, in those, in, you know, particularly in those years when you are making your first steps out into the world? Mm. You know, um, my, I had some professors when I was an undergraduate student, um, just people working, in, uh, I don't even know if they were full-time professors now. I think, you know, they might've been these part-time lecturers, but they, they always made time for me. They always answered questions, always um, encouraged me. And those small moments that that I would take with me out of that classroom would accumulate. And I realized it made a difference, you know, kindness in the classroom or in any encounter with, with people, it makes a difference whether you realize it or not. And I think kindness and, and generosity, we seem to, we, we, we mistake it for weakness and we, you know, social media tends to strip away any any access to people's vulnerabilities um, and I, I worry about that but I those professors who were you know may not have been like the most famous or uh, you know the most prolific made a difference in in my life and then when I got to graduate school there was um a, there is a, a a professor she's Greek Irini Spanadal and just one of the most honest, blunt. Some people might think she's cruel, but she just she just laid it out there, and I needed that that kind of instruction as well. Um, she was really influential and really formative for me. And Brayton Breitenbach, um, the South African poet, was really. Um, someone who pushed me to to write the things that I wanted to write. With that in mind, and something I'm asking everyone who takes part in this podcast, just to bring us right up to date, is what are you listening to? What are you watching and what are you reading at the moment? Mm. Well, what, well, I will tell you what I'm reading. Um, this absolutely riveting book written by my seven-year-old nephew. Oh. <laughs> He, he sent it to me. He has an author picture in the back. <laughs> wow. And it talks about the places that he would like to go one day. I tell you and, what, there's a lot to be said about self-publishing these days, because look at that. Right? That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And when I, I called him and I said, oh, my God, thank you so much. And he's like, Never again. I'm done writing. And then, 
Um, but I am, I'm reading, oh my God, I, I'm reading, I read several books at once, but I um, not long ago finished Len Seaside's My Name is Why, mm. which is just gut-wrenching, yeah. uh, absolutely um, gut-wrenching. And then I am in the process of, of reading uh, The Prophets uh, by um, someone called Robert... Um, Oh my goodness, I am going to forget his name now. Um, but it, it, he, oh, Robert Jones. There we go. That's it. It's Robert Jones. I call him Son of Baldwin because that's what he is on Twitter. Okay, right. Um, but it, it's the prophets. And um, it, it's an incredible, incredible book. Uh, I've been working to expand my repertoire, and my students love speculative fiction, sci-fi. And so I am now reading um, the fifth season by M.K. Jemison, And I just finished China Mayville's, one of his books, The City in the City, Uh, spectacular. So I'm reading those and I'm doing an adaptation. Uh, It'll be a global multimedia reading of Agamemnon. And I'm, I'm working on that right now and so i'm rereading agamemnon in a different translation i'm working with with a producer and getting just really working on on the pieces of it now incredible we uh we have a playlist that runs alongside this podcast and every guest gets to contribute two tracks to that playlist as well and it can be two pieces of music that either inspire, relax, allows you to switch off. Yes. What two tracks would you include in the playlist? I will tell you that the first one that comes to mind is, um, uh, oh God, I don't know how to, I'm going to type it in. It's Imahoy. I don't even know how she spells it. It's a, an Ethiopian nun uh, that's, was secretly, she's 90 something now, she was secretly for decades composing her own music, right. piano, and you can find it on Spotify. It's, it's beautiful. That is something that I will listen to when I need to just sit back and, and relax and begin to, to move my way into a story. Um, I will really, that, that is one of the musicians uh, that I go to. And then I will tell you that late at night when I'm at the end of a day, I will often put on Chet Baker oh. or I just, oh, like, I don't, it, it's just on constant rotation at night. Do you have a particular uh, Baker piece in mind? Or? Oh my goodness. Funny yeah, Valentine. Which is a, which I'm, is a terrible. Fool. I'm a fool to love you. I know all of those. <laughs> it's, but it's always, it's like, it's one of funny, it's everything. But that one is usually the one that starts it off. Born to be blue, but funny Valentine. What an incredible two choices to the playlist. <laughs> And I can't wait to listen to both of them as soon as we finish. I'm conscious that you are now just about to launch into professor mode again. Yeah. So <laughs> I will, um, I'll let you go just so you can have a couple okay. of moments just for yourself. Uh, Marza, yes. it has been absolutely joyful to be able to talk 
Oh, it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, Shane. Thank you for inviting me. I will let you know that I, I, I didn't win the Booker, but I won something called the Hookie Booker, which is, there's a brewery that's one of the oldest in the UK. Right. And they, they awarded me their version of the Booker Prize. And so I have a, some free pints to go pick up. And they told me I could invite some friends. <laughs> I, am, I am there. <laughs> we are going to do it. So there we have it. A huge thank you to the wonderful Marza Mengiste for taking the time out to speak with me and also for having a very, very cool New York soundscape in the background. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening and being supportive of this podcast. We're already in the planning stages for season two and hopefully we'll have some announcements before too long. As always, you can support us in many different ways. You can like us, share us, retweet, give us a star rating, comment and all the other usual social media business you can also buy us a coffee if you head over to www.ko-fi.com forward slash the composite mind full details will be there you can also find full details for this episode and previous episodes over on the roughhouse theater website that's www.roughhousetheater.com don't forget, there's also the Composite Mind guest-curated playlist with everyone from a 90-year-old Ethiopian piano-playing nun all the way through to the Nova Twins. My name's Shane Morgan, and this is a Rough House Theatre production with original music by Owen Morgan. Thank you so much for joining us for Season 1, and we will see you very soon for another season of The Composite Mind. Yeah.